Shall I lead us in prayer? Father, we've just sung that we want to hear your gentle voice. And that's exactly what we need. We need your gentle voice. Thank you, Father, for your patience with us. Thank you for your gentleness with us. And thank you that you speak. So as I speak, Father, would we hear your gentle voice for our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Back in 2014, in May 2014, there was a very, very prestigious cycling competition called the Tour of California. It was well underway. I think it was the seventh stage. And and the pack of cyclists were just nearing the finish line. And at the very head of the pack, there was a certain cyclist, a 31-year-old Spaniard called Eloy Terrell, and he was taking the lead. And with the roar of the crowds in his ears, he saw the finish line, and he powered on, and he got his nose over the line in first place, and he started celebrating. He started pumping his fists in the air, saying, I've won, I've won, I've won. But he forgot that actually it wasn't the last lap. And in fact, uh, he, uh, he started partying and he stopped pedaling. And soon the entire pack overtook him. And I think at the very end of the race, having thought he'd arrived, I think he finished in 56th place. It, it goes down to one of the greatest sporting blunders. Uh, if, is cycling a sport? It's more transport, isn't it? It's one of the most transporting uh, blunders ever. Well, here's a church Paul is writing to who think they've arrived. If you like, they've stopped peddling and they started partying. They're kind of influenced by their Greek culture, which says that um, they didn't really believe in a future bodily resurrection. They kind of thought their bodies were simply cages, which they needed to discard in order to one day have a sort of a spiritual existence. Which means that for them, the Christian life was all about the here and now. It was all about the spiritual present rather than a physical future. Like Eloy, they thought they had arrived. They stopped peddling. They started partying. So if you were to go away later and read through this letter, you'd see that they had very little interest in fighting sin. In chapter 6, you read how some of them in the church are sleeping with prostitutes quite regularly, and no one blinks an eyelid. One guy particularly sleeping with his father's wife, and no one blinks an eyelid. So they become uh, completely corrupt in that way. But not only that, they also become rather greedy and self-indulgent. You can read in chapter 11 how when they come together for the Lord's Supper, when they have a meal together as a church, all the rich people would come early, and they'd be feasting and scoffing and getting drunk, while all the poor people get nothing. Again, utterly corrupted and with all of this going on for some reason they still thought themselves to be the spiritual victors they thought they'd arrived now imagine for a moment you're the apostle paul and you're writing to that church in that situation what would you say if it was me i'd be wanting to lay into them pretty hard wouldn't you I'd be wanting to, to fling threats and warnings and in order to sort of cower them almost into repentance because they're a scandal. They're a scandal. 
And that kind of was going to be the sermon I was going to preach. I had written a sermon where the introduction kind of exposed all the different ways in which we're influenced by our culture, all the ways in which we're living for the here and now, uh, a bit like the Corinthians. And I was going to talk in the intro about the prevalence of pornography addiction um, amongst us. I was going to talk about the prevalence of self-indulgence with our money and our resources. And it would have been a really hard-hitting, meaty sermon. And we would have all gone away feeling very chastised and guilty. But I doubt any of us would have left here wanting to change. What surprises me here in chapter 15 is that Paul's approach is completely different to the one which I might have used. He ends in verse 34 by calling them to repent. He says, come back to your senses, wake up, stop sinning. He gets there. But what is extraordinary about this chapter is how he gets there. And the way he gets there is by capturing this church with a better vision, a better way of living. And it's all to do with the resurrection. I came across this quote recently from the comic actor Bill Murray. You don't remember, you know Bill Murray? He said this. A few years ago we had Johnny Cash, Bob Hope, Steve Jobs. Now we have no cash, no hope, and no jobs. Please don't let Kevin Bacon die. It's a rather depressing thought, isn't it? Well, well Paul begins here with a really depressing thought experiment. He wants to show us what happens if there is no future resurrection of the dead. What happens if there isn't going to be a day when God will bodily raise believers to life to be with him forever? That's what the Corinthians thought. They didn't think that would happen. And Paul shows them the trajectory of that thinking. It's our first point. No resurrection means no hope. Just look down with me in verse 12. Verse 12. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. You might know that um, game Jenga. Do you have that in your home? Jenga? It's a sort of a kid's game. The idea is you have a, a tower of bricks and you stack them one on top of another. And the idea of the game is it, one by one you remove a brick from the tower and you put it on top. And eventually, you take turns doing that until you have this, this tall tower which is resting on a single solitary block. And if you're an idiot, some of the kids at our awesome kids' club are, they always yank that brick out thinking it will stay up. And it never does. Well, Paul compares, if you like, the resurrection to that brick. The entire edifice of the Christian faith has its weight on the truth of Christ's resurrection. So the first bit of the Jenga tower to collapse, if you deny the resurrection, is the reliability of the Bible. Look at verse 14. Verse 14. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we apostles are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he was raised Christ from the dead. In other words, if Christ wasn't raised, then all the apostles are complete liars. And and what is this? Well, this is a collection of apostolic writing. If the apostles are liars, then this is absolutely useless to us. We might as well throw it in the bin, or perhaps send it down to Keats Library and put it in the fiction department. If Christ has not been raised, 
We can't trust the apostles. We can't trust the Bible. And that means God doesn't speak. And we're left guessing. That's the first bit of the tower to collapse. The next bit of the tower to fall over is the forgiveness of our sins. Look down to verse 16 with me. Verse 16. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ hasn't been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Imagine for a moment that somewhere outside Jerusalem, underground, very deep, is the decaying body of Jesus. Okay? Imagine that. If that is true, then the entire Christian faith is futile. It's in vain. It's worthless. You might know that as, as Jesus died on the cross, he shouted out those words, It is finished. It's finished. Our sin has been dealt with. It's been forgiven, forgotten, forever. But if Christ wasn't raised, then he may as well shout it out, I am finished. Without the resurrection, friends, there's no proof that the cross worked. There's no proof that it's done you or me any good. There's no proof that we can stand before a holy God on the day of judgment and not be found guilty. If Christ has not been raised, no forgiveness. But the last bit of the Jenga tower to fall over is our future hope. Look down to verse 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. I don't know if you've ever been to a funeral of a Christian believer I think like all funerals, they're always, they're always sad, aren't they? Um, but I've found funerals of Christians, they're sad, but, but they're hopeful. Sad, but hopeful. And the last, the last Christian funeral I was at was a man called John Farrah. He was a very close uh, family friend of ours. And uh, he died in, I think, his early 40s of, of motor neurone disease, which is the same thing Stephen Hawking has. And because he had this sort of degenerative illness, he kind of knew when he was going to die. He had a good idea what, what would happen and when that would be. And most of his family didn't know the Lord. They weren't believers. And so what he did, he put together this video which would be played at his own funeral because he wanted his unbelieving family to know something of the hope that he has. I remember I was, I was manning the, um, the PowerPoint, the, clicking all the buttons on the laptop on the day, and I, I vividly remember that video. It began with, with pictures of his, of his childhood. He was a baby and then a toddler. And every now and then there were these sort of clips of him sort of running around as a kid and then messing around on bikes as, as, as a teenager. And then we had some funny photos and videos of him when he was a hippie in a commune, I think, in the 80s. Um, and then, but then his, his sort of life went on and then he was a headmaster. He was a really keen marathon runner and, and, and cyclist. And he did all this stuff. But as the videos and photos went on, it, it so, showed him in his, in, as he hit his 40s and it showed him beginning to decay and him getting thinner and thinner. It showed clips of him not being able to walk and having to use a wheelchair. Uh, clips of him not being able to, th- to speak and having to use a little machine to communicate to people with. And perhaps the most striking thing I remember is, is as, as this video was being played, was there was that Johnny Cash song being, being sung. You might know it, a song called Hurt. And um, Johnny Cash is singing about the pointlessness of living for this life alone. The words are this. What have I become? 
my sweetest friend. Everyone I know goes this way in the end. And you can have it all. My empire of dirt. I will let you down. I will, let you, I will make you hurt. And that's where the video ended. With a black screen. And his unbelieving family were inconsolable. Because they've just lost their son. He's in his early 40s. And that's it. He's dead. He's gone. No consolation. No hope. No future. That's it. Paul concludes this thought in verse 19 by saying, If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. If you're here tonight and you don't think Jesus was raised bodily from the dead, then the most loving thing you could do for the friend or family member who brought you along is to persuade them to live for the now. Is to persuade them to live for yourself. To live, to indulge every pleasure and and whim which you have. Because as it is, your Christian friend is living a lie and they're wasting their lives if Christ wasn't raised from the dead. But if Christ was raised from the dead, then I'm afraid that the reverse is true. And you are to be pitied. Because in the face of death, you have no hope. None. I'm kind of glad Paul ends his rather depressing thought experiment there, aren't you? And he kind of turns now from the depressing news to show us that Christians have real hope. Certain hope hope because Christ was raised from the dead. It's our second point. Christ's resurrection means we have certain hope. Look down with me to verse 20. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. I love this. Paul uses a farming illustration to, uh, to talk about the resurrection here. He calls Christ's resurrection the first fruits, if you like, the, the guarantee of what is to come. So imagine it's the, uh, it's the beginning of August and a farmer, let's call him Farmer Giles, he's just finished harvesting the first of his 100 fields and he's heading home to his impoverished family. It's been a hard year. And over his shoulder is a big sack of corn. It is the first fruits. And as he bursts through the kitchen, as he swings this big, heavy sack of healthy corn onto the table, his family rejoice. Because they know if that's the first field, then they know all the successive fields are going to be just as good. It's the guarantee of what's to come. That's Christ's resurrection. It's the first fruits. He's the guarantee that we will be raised also when he returns. But you might ask, well, Andy, what's the link then between Christ's resurrection and our resurrection? What sews those two together? Well, Paul explains in verse 21, if you look down. Verse 21. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Paul wants us to imagine there are two family trees, Okay. And everyone who has ever lived belongs to either one family tree or the other family tree. One of these trees belongs to Adam. He's the biological head of the human race. 
He's the, the one in whose footsteps we walk, our natural inclination being to, to, to disobey God just like he did. And one of the, the things about belonging to this family tree is that there is a, a hereditary family curse. Everyone in this tree will one day face death. But Paul says those who believe in Christ have switched family trees. It's as though we've been plucked out of this one and stuck into this one. And this one has Christ as the family head. And as the family head, whatever happens to him is what's going to happen to us. So you might know that Christ died, and we died with him. But Christ was raised, and that means we will be raised with him. And, but, but Paul goes on, it's much bigger than that. It's not just about us. Christ's resurrection is, is a bit like um, if you've got a big firework display, but it's just a tiny match starts it off. Or if you have a, a big domino rally in a huge sports hall, well, it's just the tiniest flick of a finger which kicks the whole thing off. Christ's resurrection, Paul says, as he goes on to argue, it, it kicks off a series of events which will bring about the consummation, the restoration of the whole of creation. So I'm just going to read the next bit, and I just want you to follow that thought with me from verse 23, if you'd be so kind. Follow with me, verse 23. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then, when he comes, those who belong to him, then the end will come, when Christ hands over the kingdom of God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it's clear this doesn't include God himself who put everything under Christ. But when he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. Do you see this, this new future that members of Christ's family tree have to look forward to? It's as though we're all wrapped up in, in the Son's plan to glorify the Father, to hand all things over to him, that he might be all in all. I know some people, when they, when they get a book out of Keats' library, or maybe when they buy a book, what they do is they, they always flip to the last chapter. Can you do this? And they, I don't understand it either, but they, they, it me, I don't understand it. But they always read the last chapter, because they want to know, is it a happy ending or not? How does it work out? Because if they, if they know how it ends, it means they'll be able to cope during all the ups and downs of the novel, all the heartache and all the pain and all the unknowns. They know what they know how it'll end. Well, friends, we're a bit like that. We know the end of the story. We, we don't just vaguely think we have a future with God. We know we do. It's been guaranteed by Christ's resurrection from the dead. So for us, death is not the great unknown. Death is not stepping into darkness, as it's sometimes called. Rather, it is the beginning of a new life that will go on for all eternity. So back to John's funeral, that video which he made. It finished on a black screen, but overlaid over that black screen was some white text and they were the words of the Lord Jesus. And it said this, I am the resurrection 
and the life. Whoever believes in me will live even though he dies. Even though he dies. Friends, unlike the world outside, we have a philosophy of life that enables us to cope when our GP says you have no hope. When we're told that the depression will not go away. When we're told that we're not going to be able to conceive a child. When we're told that the cancer is terminal. We have hope. We have hope. Friends, as we struggle on with suffering, as we struggle on against our sin, as we struggle with deteriorating bodies, remember that Christ has been raised. And that means you will be raised. That is our hope. And it is certain. It is absolutely certain. Now, I kind of wanted to finish there. That would be a nice sort of moment to finish, wouldn't it? But I can't. I can't finish there. Because Paul hasn't really addressed this problem in the church. Here was uh, the Corinthian church. They, they thought they'd arrived. Here was a church who'd basically given up fighting sexual sin. Here was a church who'd basically just wanted to live for the here and the now. But I'm grateful for Paul's approach here. He didn't slam them. Instead, he gently showed them the trajectory of their thinking. Guys, if you think there's no resurrection, you have no hope. And then he shows them a better vision. Christ has been raised, so you have a certain hope. But he finishes here, our final point, by calling them to wake up. Wake up and stop sinning. Look down with me to verse 34. We're going to skip over some verses for the sake of time. So look with me to verse 34. Paul writes this. Sorry, verse 33. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character come back to your senses as you ought literally wake up as you ought and stop sinning for there are some who are ignorant of god and i say this to your shame we'd be fools if we thought this verse didn't really apply for us here tonight within the visible church that is within the gathered people who self-identify as christians Paul says there's going to be those of us who are misled or corrupted by our culture's way of thinking. Who are living for the here and now. Who are ignorant of God and don't really know him at all. Now we might not say we, oh, we deny the resurrection a bit like the Corinthians did. But we may well deny it with our lives. Uh, let me give you an example. You might have heard this one before. A few years ago, a friend of mine asked me, Andy, do you, do you have a distinctively Christian bank statement? I thought it was a really weird question to ask. He's one of those people who asked weird questions with no warning, without any, how are you, how are you doing? He just went straight and he came up to me, do you have a distinctively Christian bank statement? And I, I humoured him, I sort of entertained him. I said, what on earth do you mean? We well, clarified, he said, Andy, how you spend your, your income, it kind of reveals a great deal about what you really love it reveals a great deal about where your security lies it reveals a great deal about your hope and where that lies so he said hypothetically Andy if we took your your monthly incomings and outgoings and if we projected them on the wall at work and all your colleagues could see your your incomings and your outgoings would they be able to tell that you're a Christian Would they be able to tell that you believed in the resurrection of the dead? 
that this life isn't all there is. And that hit me for six. That simple, awkward question revealed the fact that even though I, I, I believe in the resurrection, actually, with my life in that area, I didn't. See, friends, if we really believed in the resurrection, that, that this life isn't all there is, if we really held and cherished that vision of the future which Paul's just excited us about, well, just think how much more generous would we be with our time and our money? Just think how much more open we'd be with our homes and our dinner tables. Just think how much more risky we'd be in, in speaking about our faith in Christ with our colleagues or our friends or our family. If, if we really believe that these bodies, these decaying bodies, will one day be raised to eternal life, that they belong to him and, and not really us, then surely we'd be far more radical in our fight against sin, in, in putting to death our, our addictions to uh, pornography or fantasy or flirting to get attention and, and love. Surely we wouldn't even consider going out with someone who's not a believer. Surely we'd be more willing to open up and be honest and broken with each other. Because this life is not all there is. In many respects, Paul, the apostle, is our model here. Just look down to verse 30. Just see how radical he is. Because he holds the resurrection. Verse 30. And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day. Yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let's just eat and drink. Because tomorrow we're going to die. So friends, may I ask you, what are you living for? Are you living for the present? Or are you living for the resurrection future? Are you living for self-indulgence? Or are you living to be selflessly radical in your discipleship? And the solution isn't to rack ourselves and to flay ourselves and to feel really guilty. The solution, as Paul's shown us, is to gaze at the resurrection. Christ has been raised from the dead. We are united to him. And that means his future is our future. We have a certain glorious hope.